we do project recovery in 2021. In fact, there may be a sizable rebound, but only if we succeed with containing the virus everywhere and prevent liquidity problems from becoming a solvency issue. A key concern about a long-lasting impact of the sudden stop of the world economy is the risk of a wave of bankruptcies and layoffs that not only can undermine the recovery, but can erode the fabric of our societies. That's Kristalina Georgieva, the Managing Director of the IMF, offering a hopeful message for an economic recovery next year, but with a warning. So when should we expect the world to get back to normal? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast, coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, our future editor, joining us down the line. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. So, uh, recovery. Is that what everyone's looking to, towards at the moment? I think so. And I'm excited today because we're going to dig into what's going on in India and China. So I think recovery, maybe not is where we're at, but in, Chi- in China, possibly so. Well, India has restricted the movement of its 1.3 billion population. That's affected sectors from travel and tourism to aviation, textiles, construction, manufacturing, hospitality and retail. And many workers are returning to rural areas from the cities. This is what Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi had to say. That's the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi apologizing for the hardships caused by what some are terming as the people's curfew in India. It's underway. Commercial activity is stalled. Of course, India is one of the world's most important economies. It impacts trading partners like the UAE. Um, Authorities there are attempting to slow the spread of the coronavirus like they are everywhere. Uh, But there's concerns that the peak of the outbreak is still weeks away. Now, we're lucky to be joined by Rebecca Bunden, who is the Nationalist Correspondent in Mumbai, the financial hub in India. Uh, She's joining down the line. Um, The stock market rally that was going on last week has has come to a halt at the beginning of this week as well. So, Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about what the sentiment is like on the ground in Mumbai at the moment? Yes, pretty weak at the moment, actually. We're about one week into this lockdown now. And Mumbai, which is India's financial capital, is a city where there's always normally activity going on. There's always a huge amount of traffic on the road. People come here essentially for work. It's really a very bustling uh, place. But we've seen it come to a virtual standstill because of this lockdown. People are essentially confined to their homes, working from home. Um, a lot of labourers are left without work, um, daily wage labourers who can't go out and do the work that they would normally do. So really, like it's been a tr- complete transformation of this city and the country as a whole. It is an unprecedented situation uh, with the government saying that this needs to be done despite the, 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 the impact that it's having on uh, people's livelihoods, given the concerns around the potential spread of the virus in a country where you do have a population of 1.3 billion people and a, a relatively weak healthcare system as well. 
Rebecca, it's good to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. I'm wondering if you can frame up for us uh, India's economic situation prior to the coronavirus and what it faces now. Yeah, so even before the coronavirus situation started to affect India, India's economy was really not doing very well. If we look at the latest quarterly data, which came out uh, for the quarter to the end of December, we saw growth of 4.7% in terms of GDP growth on the year, which was actually about a seven-year low. So India was already very worried about its economic situation. And now it's had the impact of the coronavirus on top of all this, where we're seeing the economy essentially grounding to a halt because of the the lockdown and the impact on global trade and, and so on. And so Moody's, um, Moody's Investor Service, Services has come out with a, a forecast, a new forecast for India of growth of 2.5% um, for this calendar year. And that's down from an earlier estimate of 5.3%. Now, that kind of number is really worrying for a country like India because it, it, the consensus is that India needs economic growth of around 8% in order to create jobs for its population in order to support the, uh, the p- people in the country um, and have that sort of that strong uh, growing economy in order to be able to uh, develop as an economy. So that's really a big concern for the country. Um, at the top of the show, we were, we, we'd heard from the IMF's managing director talking about the potential for recovery in 2021, but very much the governments and you know countries have to do what's needed to support uh their economies during this really difficult time. Now, the Indian government's put out a package of about $22.5 billion. It's largely largely aimed at the poor, provides foods, there's some cash handouts. And also the RBI, the central bank in India, has cut rates as well and announced a three-month moratorium on loan repayments. Is there an expectation? Can, Can you even see if there's an expectation of that's just the beginning? Or is there likely to be more from the government going forward? Analysts are saying that more will need to be done as the situation continues. We still don't have a a lot of visibility on how everything will play out. But I mean, they are saying that 22.5 billion, if you look at it as a percentage of the GDP and compare it to what other countries are doing, it's relatively low. So even in terms of aid for the poor, uh, there needs to be much more than that. And uh, I mean, a lot of people on the ground here are saying that they're not necessarily receiving those benefits yet. So there are challenges when it comes to the implementation of, of such a relief package as well. That's something else that needs to be considered. But the general um, view of analysts is that, that more uh, money will need to be injected to, to help people that are being hit. I mean, also, there have been some calls for uh, small businesses to to get some kind of relief because at the moment they have zero income and a lot of them are still having to pay uh, wages out to staff and so on. So there are hopes for from them that they might get some some kind of help at at some point. Um, and yes, there was that that uh, interest rate cut, the emergency interest rate cut that we saw from the RBI last week, which was actually much bigger than a lot of people were expecting. There, there had been hopes for an interest rate cut, um, but 75 basis points, that's, that's pretty huge. Um, but then there are these wider concerns as well that, well, there may be this relief in terms of loans as well that the RBI announced, and there may be this interest rate cut. 
But if businesses are completely stopped operating, then they're not going to be investing anyway, and they're not getting revenues that are coming in. So they feel that they still need more help, and, and there are expectations that more will need to be done. Um, you could certainly understand why Narendra Modi was apologising for the hardships. Rebecca Bunden uh, from Mumbai, thanks so much for being with us, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Great to join you. The fledgling beat of commerce is returning to Wuhan, where the coronavirus outbreak was first detected at the very end of last year. Two months of heavy restrictions on the movement of 11 million people have been eased, and travel and shopping are possible again. Now, thousands, of course, died in the province of Hubei, where Wuhan is. 67,000 cases were reported, with about 62,000 recovered now, astonishingly. More than 90% of markets, shops and malls in China and 70% of small and medium-sized businesses have reopened as of the middle of March. That's according to consultancy IHS Market. China Railway has resumed work on about 93% of its major construction projects. But what can we glean from the China experience in terms of what a recovery could look like elsewhere, including here? To explore this, Doug Guthrie joins us down the line, where he is head of China initiatives at the Thunderbird School of Global Management in the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit of, of from your expert point of view in terms of, of what you know of China and what you know of, of how it works, of, of the, they're currently, particularly in Wuhan and Hubei, they're trying to get things back to normal. Do you think this is something that, an, an example that the rest of the world can learn from in terms of, of what the immediate future looks like? So the, sh- the short answer is, yes, it's something that the world can learn from. Whether the world can actually adapt to it uh, is a different question. Um, how can we w- learn from it? Um, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist, but I'm somebody who studies, you know, political economies of China. And so China has been incredibly effective because they shut everything down. They just quarantined an entire city and province. Um, And while I wasn't in China at the time, I have a research team that's there. And uh, my research team is all in Shanghai, but it it was very clear um, from people inside of China that the government just shut it down and people couldn't move. Now, there's an interesting, when you ask the question, can the world learn from this? Uh, As I'm sure you all know, and watching the news, uh, we've just had this debate in the United States. Um, and, uh, just yesterday, my kids were asking me, well, well, how come we can't just shut down New York the way they shut down Wuhan? And the answer is we can't do that. The, the governor of, of New York said Donald Trump would be at war with New York state if he tried to do that. And so, so the, the, the short answer is it can be done. Um, you can stop movement, um, but whether or not other parts of the world would be willing to is a different question. Now, the, the interesting case, in my opinion, is South Korea. South Korea uh, is a democracy, and they pretty effectively um, stopped things in its, their tracks as well. I think the difference between, say, South Korea and the United States is South Korea is so much smaller, and uh, there's more appetite for more authoritarian measures than there are in places like the United States. So, I don't know. I, I hope that answers your question. It, well, it kind of uh, it opens up another question. I'll let Kelsey jump in in a sec, but I just want to ask, it, 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 this may sound blindingly obvious, but to me, 
it, it's it's kind of a bolt from the blue, which is um, the dealing with the pandemic. Um, even though we're talking about economic issues, that this is very much a political uh, issue that each country has to work through, depending on their own political system. Correct. I mean, I, I think that's a hundred percent the the issue. Is this is really a political question about what you're willing to do and what you're willing to sacrifice as a society in order to stop something like this in its tracks. I'm wondering, so there's a bit of a back-to-work message in China now, even in the last few days, but my sense is that China's recovery or the consensus is that because of the nature of the global supply chain, China's recovery is as dependent on others' recovery as it is inside of itself. What do, what, what do you say to that? Will, will China be hamstrung by the global response to the pandemic? My answer is yes, but in a different way than you're asking. So the first thing is that the world is so dependent on China that the, the very issue of getting back to work is less dependent on the consumer-based economy outside and more dependent on just the fact that companies need China. Um, you know, every company in electronics or in the automotive industry, I, I mean, the, the, we are so dependent on the global supply chain and in particular, how much products run through China that I think there's going to be demand no matter what. Now, the, the interesting thing in my mind uh, that's behind the question that you're asking is related to the previous question, which is that... Um, China's supply chain, one of the secrets of China's supply chain depends on mobility around the country. Um, so there's a, there's a migrant labor force in China of about 200 million people that are literally called the floating population. And they roam around the country and work as sort of temp laborers in, in different factories all over China. And so this is actually one of the, the interesting secrets that most people don't realize or understand about how the supply chain works. Um, but it's, it's one of the, it's the secret sauce. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about that is that it depends on people being able to move around the country. And if you suddenly have a pandemic in which the government says nobody's going anywhere, then you lose one of the secrets of the supply chain. And so it's, I think the interesting question has been, at what point is the government going to really feel comfortable that, that the pandemic is shut down in China such that they can let the floating population roam free again? And that we have not seen yet. And so I think it's going to be an interesting case for the economics of the supply chain. My other question actually is, so governments around the world are now unleashing stimulus packages, relief packages. What is economic stimulus going to look like in China to rev its engine back up? Yeah. So, so this is an interesting thing because um, I think that the China case about the economics of the pandemic are less serious or less severe than other places like the United States. And that is because China is in this interesting process of growth. If you think about the phases of economic growth, it's gone from export-led development to investment-led growth to now making a transition to consumption-led growth. 
And so China is somewhere in between investment-led growth and consumption-led growth. And this is, China didn't invent this. This is, you know, goes back to the East Asian development models of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore. Um, it's really hard to make the transition between investment-led growth and consumption-led growth. And that leads to something that economists often refer to as the middle income trap. But China is still very heavily in the space of investment-led growth, which means that China's growth is heavily dependent on the government building infrastructure. And so, so it's an interesting sidebar. When people talk about like China's growth is going to be so affected by the pandemic or you know, there's going to be a, a drop from 5.8% growth to 5.2 or maybe 4.8%, First of all, just thinking about that, China's the second largest economy in the world, and we're talking about 4.8% growth. So that's not, you know, that would be numbers that any country around the world would, would dream of. But the key thing is that for countries that are engaged in growth through investment-led growth, you can pretty easily put your thumb on the scale because you just have to build more stuff, and China still needs to build a lot of stuff. And so that's what's going to happen is now there's a big difference between that kind of stimulus package and the kind of stimulus packages that the United States tends to offer. The United States tends to give cash, which goes to corporations, and those corporations then often do things like share buyback. And that doesn't really help workers as much. And so so I, I think in the case of China, it's not going to be as, as extreme or severe as people. You will see more investment in investment-led growth. Um, and, and that gets expensive, but that's, that's what's going to happen. It's going to put people back to work. And when you say building stuff, can you speak specifically to what it is we can, we can foresee China building? I mean, everything from building roads and railway, railways and infrastructure to building buildings that populate cities. I mean, if you just look at, you know, I used to live in Shanghai. Uh, the first time I moved to Shanghai was 1994. And if you stood on the Bund and looked across, you would see no, nothing. And then 20 years later, when I lived in Shanghai again, you stood on the, that Bund and saw an entire city with three of the the, the top 20 tallest cities uh, buildings in the world. Do and you so, see, though, this as an, an as a, uh, impetus for... 5G network, greater oh. investment in data infrastructure, greater investment in high-speed rail, like not just the, the bridges and railroads. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like this is, I mean, I think the, those two things is different because one is the, the inf infrastructure stuff, so high-speed rail, but like absolutely the, the Huawei's of the world are going to just take off in terms of, of continuing their process of building 5G networks and those, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, Doug Guthrie from the Thunderbird School of Management in the US. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, have you back to kind of gauge how China really is doing in the next few months and by extension, the rest of the world. Thank you so much for having me and I'm happy to talk anytime. So Kelsey, we looked at India, we looked at China. More generally, if we think about what the IMF has said about recovery next year, we're kind of really in the, we're kind of where China's beginning the first steps We've still got massive economies like India and the U.S. that haven't even begun um, to, to kind of deal with the pandemic beyond sort of the early stages. Um, so it kind of looks like it's a pretty tight deadline to hit. 
in 2021, in fact. Indeed. And happy last day of the first quarter. So three quarters to go. Well, when you put it that way, it actually sounds like we've got, we got a bit of time. Always here for the silver lining. Thank you very much. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us. Kelsey Warner, we'll speak again next week. Good to be with you as always. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Lebanon's economic model is broken and the country is committed to carrying out a four-point recovery that it hopes to finalize before the end of 2020. Abu Dhabi's Hub 71 marks its first year as it adapts to challenging times. And the US oil price fell to a near 18-year low. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe or leave a review. Let me thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.